0: This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred rights.org, that's W R I T E S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore Welcome to Classical Ideas, this is Greg Soden. The ways the internet is changing religious worship, celebration, and practice is an exploding area of research in the world of religious studies. At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, I discussed how some online Christian and Buddhist groups are altering their gatherings to reflect the ever-changing realities of our world. The next two episodes follow on in that same story. These two episodes, featuring Dr. Athipa Sundaram and Caitlin Ugaretz, trace how online and digital spaces in Hindu and Shinto traditions are altering the landscape of what is possible within religious practices around the world rather suddenly, celebrations and festivals are also hashtags, and priests are also exploring digital spaces as the world shifts, evolves, and globalizes. My guest on this episode is Dr. deepa Sundaram, and we're discussing Hinduism and social media. Dr. Sundaram is a scholar of performance, ritual, yoga, and digital culture in South Asia at the University of Denver, which sits on unceded tribal lands of the Cheyenne and Arapaho people. Her research examines the formation of Hindu virtual religious publics through online platforms, social media, apps, and emerging technologies such as virtual reality and artificial intelligence. We discuss her recent article, Instagram Your Durga Puja, social media, hashtags, and state-sponsored cultural marketing, which explores how West Bengal's tourism initiatives use Instagram to foster virtual ethno-nationalist social networks during Durga Puja. In this conversation, we also spotlight issues of access and accessibility to religious spaces and the viability and visibility of online counter-narratives, especially those from minoritized, marginalized caste, gender, and class communities. You can follow Deepa Sundaram on Twitter at TheModSisyphus, and you can follow me on Twitter at classical_ideas. Please enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Dr. Deepa Sundaram, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I am so delighted to have you, and I'm wondering if we can just start off and have you introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit.
1: Great. Yeah. Um, My name is Dr. Deepa Sundaram. I am a professor, assistant professor of Hindu studies at the University of Denver. I work um, on South Asian digital culture, religion, ritual, and performance. Um, And my current book project looks at, it's called Globalizing Dharma. And I'm interested in the ways in which online spaces and the creation of Hindu publics has impacted ethno-fascism in India.
0: Wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm excited to hear the story of how you became interested. In the topics that you are interested in, because it sounds to me like you're sort of like me, like you spend a lot of your time in then like the virtual spaces of the of the world from reading your work. I know that you're very interested in social media as well. So we have this sort of very online sort of beginning to our conversation, which is very appropriate because we're on the Internet for everybody to hear right now. And I want to know about the origin of your expertise. How you came to care about these topics, and then maybe a little bit about your academic path that you traveled in order to come to today.
1: Okay, so that's that's a great question, um, and it does have a story. So. Um, I am a comparative literature PhD, so I put that out there because most people don't know what comparative literature is, Um, and I (laughs) am trained as a semiotician, which most people don't know what that is, but what I'm really interested in, (laughs) yeah, I'm really interested in meaning making mechanisms in general, and so my dissertation work actually looked at anti-colonial drama from 1900, sorry, anti-colonial Tamil drama from 1900 to 1930 and I was interested in the formation of nationalist sentiment in India. And when I went on the job market, um, it turns out that comparative literature departments, which of there are maybe 20 in the United States, aren't really interested in hiring a South Asianist who works on multiple literatures. Mm. I'm also a trained Sanskritist and I, taught Sanskrit for 15 years all the way through graduate school. Wow. And and now so I'm a classically trained South Asianist. Um, but it was very challenging to find a job. And I I <laughs> I had a number of one year positions in Hinduism, which is interesting. Uh not because I don't have any teaching experience in Hinduism, but I don't actually have a, a upper level degree in in Hinduism. Mm. And So I embraced that and I thought, okay, this is where my expertise is. And I started applying to these jobs um, in Hinduism and in South Asian religion and ultimately ended up here um, as a tenure track professor here at um, the University of Denver teaching Hindu studies. So that's how I came to be where I am. But my research was still focused on drama. I mean, I am a, you know, I'm a comparatist, but as I started teaching more in Hinduism, one of the things that I would come across when I was doing research for classes um, was were these online installations of Hinduism. And so I was trying to prepare for a class I teach called Death and Dying in Hinduism. And I came across a website called uh, Tarapith, And Tharapit is a place in a small town called Birnbaum, Bengal. And it is a shrine that is dedicated to the goddess Thara. Now, Thara has a number of different um, stories behind her in both the Buddhist and Hindu tradition, but this is a particularly Hindu iteration of Thara and she's called the corpse goddess. And the reason for that is she actually has, um, she takes a blood sacrifice, which is supposed to make her very powerful The people who go there believe that if they do um, a proper puja or ritual to her, that they will actually uh, sort of get her blessing or her power. But if they don't honor her, she could potentially do something more negative. Mm. Um, And so this seemed really interesting to me, and I shared it with my students. But as I started to look more into this, I started to find that there were a number of ritual sites dating all the way back to 1999, uh, where the oldest... Hindu ritual site was put online, shadernam.com, And I thought, wow, what a fascinating thing. I wonder if anyone looks at this. And so I started digging into it. Um, And the University of Denver, at the time I was actually a visiting professor here and the University of Denver was desperately trying to help me get a job because there are great people. And so they said, wow, this is really interesting. Why don't you give a talk on it? And I said, okay. And so I did and I gave a talk on it and I realized um, that this was where my heart was. I, I was fascinated by it. And I just wanted to spend all of my nights looking through and pouring through these sort of virtual interactions um, of, of religion in particular. And I read he- Heidi Campbell's books, who's seen as, I don't know that she'd want to be described as a grandmother, so I won't say that, but she is sort of the founding member of this kind of this field of study, this, this sort of subgenre within religious studies. I read, you know, all of the major players like Chris Helland and Greg Grieve. Um, I got in touch with a woman named Xenia Zyler, who teaches in Europe, who writes on gaming and religion and, awesome. and well, and, and same sorts of things. Yeah. And so we we started talking and that's how I came to start doing this work. She invited me to be a part of her edited volume. On digital religion, I gave a couple of conference papers on Durga Puja, and she was like, oh, I would love to have you write this up as an article. And I thought, am I really qualified to do that? And then I, I, I gave it a shot. You know. Um, and so that's how this article came about. And that's actually how I began researching this stuff. And I kind of junked my dissertation, maybe one day I'll go back to it. Um, but I realized that this is really the kinds of things I'd like to learn about and what fascinates me is how people are engaging in religion in virtual spaces.
0: Yeah, and you know, I I know personally how that feels whenever you sort of like stumble upon something brand new that that captures your attention so tremendously because I was in a PhD program for social studies education and I wasn't feeling it and I was getting to comprehensive exams and I just like was like not into it, but then I got a job at a high school and I got the chance to teach world religions in this high school and my entire life changed in that Mm. moment because I junked my PhD grad school work and I took a leap and I went off in this other direction, which stumbled into this immensely gratifying work that I've been doing ever since. I mean, so I know exactly how that feels and it I feel so lucky. Do you feel lucky that you found like a new passion area where you could like really embrace
1: Oh yes, I mean, I I think that the work I did for my dissertation was really important. I translated two playwrights who wrote about the national, the nationalist movement in India, um, in Tamil, and were never translated, and honestly mm-hmm. had fallen into obscurity. And I saw that as a real contribution, like as part of my dissertation. But and I and I did find it exciting because my family is South Indian; they're from Tamil Nadu in India and I always thought okay this is a way for me to engage in something that they probably don't even know about but when I started doing this work it was very different um this felt like something that you know I had often heard from my cohort and I'm sure you have heard similar things like yeah. people who just stay up all night and like research something because they're like it's so cool and I always thought wow how cool would it be to think something is so cool like I'm like I love critical theory but I still don't love this the same way. And also, frankly, comparative literature PhDs kill your love of literature. That's Mm. my unpopular take for today. Um, And so (laughs) I just, I realized that that's not what I wanted to do. And I think, yeah, I think exactly as you said, like, it just felt right. Like when I did this new thing and I started, I wrote this paper, it was fun. I want to research the next thing. I'm, you know, I've been thinking more about. I connected with a colleague of mine, um, Owen Gottlieb, who teaches at RIT and works on interactive gaming and uh, narrative. And we're 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 working on a co-written paper that looks at a game that actually features a Hindu character. But I just never thought I would do something like that. And honestly, it's amazing. And I don't even really like gaming that much. Um, I think for me, there's something about the creation of virtual publics, the ways in which we as a people come together in virtual spaces and form community that I find absolutely fascinating.
0: Mm. So, you know, I'm curious about your field, the field that you sort of like come into of you know studying digital religion and i'm wondering like what you and your colleagues are looking for because the internet is still so new in the course of human history especially when you compare it to the existence of religion so things are changing so fast what are you all seeking to achieve in this in this new realm of studies
1: you know i'll start with a small like statement that uh, a colleague of mine once said and uh she you know when i was first started doing this she said, you know, it's not like I think that religion online is somehow different than doing religion in material spaces. She said, you know, it's not like a different kind of religion. And um, it, I, that's always stuck with me because it was early on in my career, you know, like when I first started doing this. And I think about that. And I think what she meant, and I obviously can't speak for her, but I think what she meant, or at least what it's meant to me, is that there isn't a different religion that's happening. Online. There's a different way of engaging with religion. There's a different way of engaging with spirituality, but it doesn't mean it's a different religion. It's not weird per se, for example. I think that there's a um there's a sort of uh like fascination, let me say, right? That people are doing these things like, oh, cool, that's interesting. You have a robot priest. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um But I don't, I don't think that that's the end of it. And I think that like, if our scholarly inquiry was simply about highlighting and spotlighting sort of weird, cool phenomena, then I think this would be sort of a gimmicky kind of thing. But I think what for me has started to emerge, and what I find interesting is um, the sort of impacts actually on material spaces. So how do virtual publics and the ways in which they're formed, right, actually shape, and this is get into your Heidi Campbell quote, but um, how do they shape the way we interact in real life? And in some cases, how do they actually become a a place of their own? They become a place where that interaction, that engagement, that give and take is happening online itself and is, you know, um, equally fulfilling but not necessarily in some way that is fundamentally different mm. than us, for example, going to a mosque or going to a temple or going to a church.
0: Yeah, I love that you you mentioned Campbell a couple of times. And I, I was reading your, your piece and you quote Campbell's definition, of digital religion, which I, I think is worth saying here. And she writes that it's not simply referring to religion as it is performed and articulated online, but also how digital religion and spaces are shaping and being shaped by religious practices. And, you know, I'm wondering if you can tease apart some of the complexity of what this means, because, you know, people might think of digital religion just as like, oh, I'm going to log on and watch my sermon this weekend instead of actually going to the church. But like, there's got to be more to it than that, right? I mean, can you tell me a little bit about the range of digital religious expression that you may be noticing and seeing?
1: Sure. Um, I think Campbell's trying to point out that in a couple of things. One, I think she's trying to point out that it's not simply just going and watching a sermon online. Um, That's not simply the end of it. But I think she also wants to get into what happens in that moment when people are engaging in those spaces. And I'll give you a sort of example from a friend of mine um, who likes to watch Rosh Hashanah services online Mm. Um, ever since she left uh, New York, actually, and left her synagogue, she, you know, feels connected by watching that sermon online. And part of it is being like it, being able to for herself, transport herself back to those those times when she engaged with her cohort, with her synagogue in those spaces. So mm. it, it's evokes those memories. Yeah. But the other part she talked about, which I thought was really interesting, because she would watch it on Facebook Live, is she said, you know, it was so like, you know, um, it was so heartening for her. And so um, just very like, it was a happy moment. Let me say it that way, to see all the comments and likes and hearts that people would post on the Facebook live video. It made her feel like that she was part of that community again. And that wasn't something distant. She said, it's not like watching something on TV. Because that is, you you—you have a sense, of, a suspension of disbelief, right? Like it's something that's separate. There's a distance there. And I think for me, and for what Heidi Campbell is trying to point out, is that it's shaping the way that we understand community. And I don't want to speak for Campbell, but that's how I understood it. And I think that's really important. The way we form interactions, the way we form friendships, the way we form religious Um, engagements, the way we form religious community is fundamentally about who we interact with and how we interact with them. That doesn't change when we go online, but when we go online and we have these spaces, like for example, if you're watching a church service on Facebook Live or Instagram Live, if you are interacting with a website that allows you to be a part of a puja or a ritual where you physically can press a button and ask for the priest to go and make the offering, there is a way in which that isn't very distant, Mm. um, as it might feel, right? And that person could be in India and you could be here. Um, It allows a kind of communion that I don't think um, we have ever really explored until this, right? Like, sorry, I was just going to say the only thing is that pandemic times, I think have brought a lot of this to the fore um, in ways that I don't think people imagined. I often felt like um, there was always a two-tiered approach to digital religion beforehand where people were like, yeah, if I can't get there, then this is the second best thing And I'll talk a little bit about my own research when interviewing priests before the pandemic, where they told me that this is a lot about just, you know, having satisfaction of done anything as opposed to doing the real thing. And I'm putting that in scare quotes. (laughs) Um, So I think that there is a certain shift that has happened in terms of how people perceive this. But for me and what I see, I think it's always been about forming a community that one feels comfortable engaging with, and getting that sense of community for yourself.
0: Mm. I'm really glad that you mentioned how these things can feel not that distant and very authentic. Because like for me, as somebody who... I do this show, and some of the best conversations I've had in my entire life have been totally virtual interactions by talking to people for the podcast. And so I think about my own powerful experiences and it really does reframe the way that we can have powerful interactive experiences, whether they be, you know, secular or spiritual on a totally virtual space. Cause I know how I feel whenever I have something really awesome in this space. And I'm like, well, that can be transferred to so many other spaces as well if we are, if we have our our minds open to it. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. And it's I should say one other thing. It's not simply limited to people engaging in virtual spaces or virtual platforms and having community, right? Like the other aspect of digital religion is that we have a number of apps. Um, I'll talk a little bit about a virtual reality app that I research, a, a guy who I interviewed who created a virtual reality app so people could be inside puja experiences If they couldn't attend them themselves, that's something you download on your phone, you're doing it by yourself. And those aren't people that you're talking to, but they're, it's a space that you've entered into, right, to feel the what you would have felt or what you think you would feel in being a part of that space, right? Like, so there are A num like it's digital religion is not a monolith, right? Like what we mean by that, it's it's a lot of different ways of engaging, using technology to find community and find a way to create a public.
0: Yeah. Well, something that I really want to point out that you've done seamlessly throughout this conversation that I want to make sure the listeners are paying attention to is that you mentioned how this is happening. In Christianity, you mentioned how it's happening in Judaism, you mentioned how it's happening in Hinduism. So, this is like something that is happening across spiritual spectrums. You know what I mean? Like, are there any other examples that you want to point out that are really standout moments? Because you've really touched on a lot already.
1: So, it is in every religion, and, yeah. and every religion has its own, um, let me say, own concerns. I, I'll put it that way. Like, so, orthodoxy and tradition within these different, like, different religions um, have their own concerns about how di- digital religions should work. Um, there were uh, several Im- imams that came out and said that attending a virtual mosque was not going to be the same thing during the pandemic, but that does not mean that there aren't very interesting um engagements that weren't happening. Um, And I strongly recommend Anna Piella's work on Instagram and Muslim communities if if people are interested in learning more. Um, Similarly, right, synagogues going online and sort of creating um, community in these virtual spaces has been around for a long time, but you're always going to have people that are going to push back. Hmm. um, Because they're, and I'll, I'll get into why in a minute, but um, there there are definitely people who feel like it's less authentic or less good in some way. Um, and then in Hinduism, it's been the idea of using media to engage with religion is a long standing tradition well before the Internet. So God's appearing on TV has yeah. always been a thing. Um, in fact, uh, this isn't quite online, but I'll share this funny story for your listeners if you want to <laughs> yeah, keep yeah. it. There was recently an ad that was um, in a Indian newspaper with a picture of the Indian god of death, Yama. This guy had dressed up as Yama and the police in this particular town were trying to use Yama as a way to deter traffic accidents. And so what they did is they dressed up one of their officers as Yama and every time somebody would speed, they would have this guy run out and like be like, hey, you know. And so it's and, and Indians didn't see this as offensive. I just want to point that out. This was not seen as offensive. This wasn't seen as some sort of like denigration of the of the tradition, but rather part and parcel of how Indians and Hindus, I should say, in particular interact. Um, I haven't mentioned. Um, I don't think I've mentioned every religion in the world, no, but I, I I will say that um, these are the religions that I'm familiar with. And so I don't wanna like go and speak about things that I don't know much about, but I will say one thing. Um, one of the things that's a growing area of study, um, I teach a class here called Surfing for Salvation, which is on religion in the virtual space. Awesome. And um, one of the things I was learning as I always try to do is that there is a, there are a number of different indigenous uh, religious engagements online. Um, and I learned this through Twitter because Twitter is actually really interesting. Um, and these are things that i'd love to to be able to bring in I, i'm not going to be able to name ever um an article right now but one of the things i was learning about um, indigenous traditions and the ways in which they have embraced online spaces is thinking through ecology and thinking through land and how online spaces can help us sort of preserve their own relationship with land.
0: Mm fabulous well you know i'm wondering about that a little bit more about that competition for power within like the traditional power structures and like if there are like any more notable examples too of people pushing back against the incursion of the digital world upon traditional forms of practice like has has that been that can't have been conflict free you know what i mean
1: it's not conflict free. Um, and before I continue, you are going to be interviewing my colleague, uh, Caitlin Yugarets on her work on Japanese digital religion. And so I didn't mention Shinto, but I'm going to leave it at there is a lot going on with Shinto. And I'll let Kath, Kat, uh, and Caitlin talk to you about that. Fabulous. Um, so yeah, there are, there are concerns. Um, and the concerns are really interesting. Um, so, for example, uh, Japan has Uh, recently introduced robots to do funeral processions and in Buddhist context. And this was something that came out before the pandemic, but became very popular as as Japan was trying to prevent old people, in particular people that are vulnerable um, from attending funerals, right? To get COVID and then die again, (laughs) it Mm. would be terrible. So those became much more popular, but people felt like there was a disconnect, between doing those kinds of rituals in Buddhism and doing them through a robot and they felt like there was an authenticity gap. Uh, Similarly in India when I interviewed uh, priests for my own book project, um, I interviewed a group of, uh, I interviewed priests who are called dikshatars and dikshatars are like kind of I don't like to use other religions to to categorize, but they're essentially a um, higher level priest that train other priests. And so um, one of the things that they said to me is that people who create these kinds of websites are not interested in truly, you know, moving forward dharma. What they're really interested in is what they called tripti. And tripti means satisfaction. Mm. They just want to give people a good time. Got and it. then they also said that it doesn't that it's that doing this kind of ritual, which is an, an um, authenticity issue, is only for manas, which means only for your heart. So you, it feels good. Again, like, you know, it's like you're doing the right thing because this is the thing you can do, but it's really not a real efficacious thing. hmm. And then finally, they told me that I said, well, why would a a well-trained priest then go on and start a website and try to do this, you know? And they said, oh, it's because in our profession, these folks are all interested in money. Now, I'm going to contrast that with something else with another interview that I did. So I I, I think money concerns around that people are doing this for financial gain, concerns around whether or not it's actually going to do any Thing, like have any karmic value, like having any active value. That's what, that's what karma really means is action and result. Um, or, you know, are you just doing this because it makes you feel good? Right. But recently, um, this guy as, uh, that I interviewed started this virtual reality app. And when I was interviewing him, I said, how, how did priests react when you wanted to sort of wire up their temples? to be able to create this. I said because there's a lot of issues there with India, with Hinduism in terms of purity and pollution. Mm-hmm. So you can't just have random folks like troipsing across um, into a temple. And he said, "Well, we were able to convince them that, you know, the folks that we had brought in had a lot of respect for the deities, they would follow any rules that were necessary." And I said, "But what about, you know, what other concerns did they have?" And this is the one that I'll share with you. He said, ironically, their biggest concern was money and not the money that I mentioned before. They thought that if people are going to use an app to engage with a ritual, that they would no longer do what's right and contribute to the temple. Mm. And so it was actually about money. And to me, contrasting that with what the priest said is really interesting to me, because it seems like money is one of the large concerns. And this gets into whole whole idea of like religion and money, right?
0: Like Mm -hmm. um,
1: in a a broader sense and not just in the Joel Austin sense, right? Right, Like in a broader sense. So I think that that's one of the things that you still see in India is that people encourage people to go to real, to sort of material space, physical temples in part because they're worried about donations. And when Ashwini created this app, what he told them was, don't worry, more people will donate. If you reach more people, I will add a donate button. Mm. And now the temples are very excited about the app. And that's partly because their donations have increased with the number of people who are engaging around the world with this app.
0: Amazing. Oh my gosh. I love it. Um, well, that's interesting. I'm sure that that may re- reframe the thinking of some of the people that were formally against it. Like, well, the bank account looks pretty good right now. Maybe we can do these new projects that we've been putting off for a while. You know, so that's kind of it's kind of interesting. Um, okay, so can we get into a little bit of your specific work? Is that okay? Absolutely. So I read an article of yours uh, called "Instagram Your Durga Puja." social media, hashtags, and state-sponsored cultural marketing. And that last part of the subtitle about state-sponsored cultural marketing was really grabbing my attention about 45 minutes ago before we got on the phone. Um, But we'll get into that. But I want to know for those out there who don't know, who is Durga and what is a puja, Just in case listeners out there aren't familiar with these terms. Sure.
1: Um, Durga is a goddess of war. Um, But she's also sort of a broader figure that's associated with one of the three main Hindu gods, Shiva, who is the god of destruction. She's one of his wives and she um, represents power in a lot of ways and the defeat of so-called evil. Right. She's the force of good. There is a nine night celebration of the goddess called Navaratri that happens usually in October. I think this year it's happening According to the Indian calendar, around October fifth. Don't quote me on that; I'm bad on dates. It's okay. Um, (laughs) So the Navaratri, Navaratri means nine nights, Um, and there's. If anyone wants to know more about Navaratris in general, Caleb Simmons, my friend and colleague over at the University of Arizona, this is his research. Nice. Um, And so, interestingly, the Durga Puja. So, depending on the region, let me say this: that particular festival happens and is related to another name for the goddess, right? But in Bengal, in West Bengal, it is Durga. And Durga is seen in that particular region as the force of good defeating the evil, the quote unquote evil demon Mahishasura. Um, I will give a caveat. The word demon is a very bad translation of the original Sanskrit. Um, Asura is the word, and Asura literally just means a being that is not good in this context. Okay. Um, Hinduism does not have absolute manichaean images or sorry, manichaean visions of good and evil. People are temporarily good or temporarily evil based on their actions and they can always shift around. So the story goes that this, in the Hindu context, that this Mahishasura was trying, doing all kinds of destruction and he was not um, behaving properly. And Durga was created. there's a number of different stories about this, but the main one is that Durga was created by the three main gods in Hinduism, the, the forces of creation, destruction, and sustenance, as a way to defeat Mahishasura because he had become so powerful. Um, he's also called his name translates as the buffalo demon
0: because oh, cool. he had
1: the form of the buffalo. So she comes out and she defeats him. And so the puja itself celebrates that defeat as a defeat of good and evil. But depending on the region in India, um, it's also seen as a number of other Indian, um, I should say, Hindu stories. And so in Bengal in particular, this is the story that is um, celebrated. And during that time, it's almost like a New Year's celebration. You'll have what are called pandals which are kind of like floats that represent in various creative ways the defeat of mahishasura so her spearing this this demon and him sort of falling to the ground um and you have all kinds of different ways that that is now represented um all across all across west bengal so and so that is the durga puja
0: is the it, so? I'm assuming this event is extremely large and very well attended in West Bengal. Like, what are we talking about here for the uh, like the scope of this?
1: Oh my goodness, it's huge. It's like it would. Um, the way I would compare it is ni- a New York, New York City's Times Square New Year's Eve celebration. People, um, I mean, and my my article looks a lot at how it's celebrated and how the the government has marketed it um as a puja destination um, oh and briefly puja the word puja comes from the sanskrit verb root puj, which means to worship and puja is a any kind of worship it's it's not the same as what we call a yagya which comes from the sanskrit verb root yaj which means to sacrifice in the context of a ritual um, the real difference is usually a yagya requires a priest while a puja can have one but it's really just about you it can be a personal worship ceremony so anything any ritual that's done for a god is a puja really okay. um and it has an offering
0: so Sorry. who is accessing these digital celebrations in in this uh in this particular puja like what is this like online so it's happening in person but it's also happening online so tell me about the online version that people are seeing and engaging with
1: so durga puja is happening in person and most of the online engagement, at least the ones that I looked at, um, were really about how the government wanted to capitalize Mm. on this huge event. And the way they did that is um, they created an entire section of of the West Bengal tourism website to focus on Durga Puja. And they started offering things like Puja packages Um, So it's not so much, at least my own focus, was not so much about how Durga Puja was happening online, although certainly it is happening, but the development of apps to engage with the the event itself in person. So the West Bengal Tourism Department created this entire site dedicated to Durga Puja. But in addition to that, they also came up with a number of other what they called Puja packages, and this is where the state-sponsored cultural marketing comes in. So they wanted to take a religious event and say, "Hey, look, this is actually a huge influx of people who come to West Bengal every year, and particularly what we call NRI's, so non-resident Indians, are coming home because this is their, you know, this is the time for them to engage with their families, much like we would think of a holiday like Christmas, where everybody comes home from all over, right, to to be with the family." And so they created um, packages where you could come in and see all the best pandals, right? Um, like you didn't want to just like come and see some stupid pandal. You want to see the really big ones that the famous celebrities, you know, um, attend. They also created an app, which um, is called Sharad And Sharad is an app that was created by the West Bengal government. And it's paired with the Kolkata police app. And what it does is it tells you how to uh, go where all the best pandals are, how to get there, how to um, you know connect with your friends. And then it also gives you a share button so that you can share your photos with the West Bengal government. And so they essentially created a virtual canon of images of what constitutes Durga Puja. And the Kolkata Police app was actually the most downloaded app in 2017 when I wrote this article <laughs> in <laughs> during this time. And that's because they are the ones who actually permit pandals. So if you really want to make sure that you have the most accurate list and people go pandal hopping, just like we go party hopping during New Year's Eve. So you get that app and you can see where all the pandals are. You can connect with your friends and then go to all of the different pandals. This is a large street party that is facilitated through apps.
0: My goodness, um that is amazing and you know so what what I'm wondering now is it sounds like this makes the event more accessible mm-hmm. to to people, right? Um Does this make the event more accessible to people who have been historically and traditionally marginalized from certain worship spaces? Is there any improvement on bringing people who were ostracized into these celebrations because it's more, you know, widely available in digital spaces as well?
1: So let me say one thing this this app and part of the efforts of the West Bengal Tourism Department were to promote not only Durga Puja, but to promote a vision of Bengali identity. Because mm-hmm. um, in addition to this, they also started their own state-sponsored, my, what we call a micro corporation called Bishwa Bangla, which is basically a, a corporation that is all about selling Bengali stuff. right? Everything from indigenous products, any kind of thing related to not only Durga puja, but Kali puja as well, which is another, Uh, Bengal is kind of the land of the goddesses. And so you see a lot of different goddess pujas that are there and they're marketing stuff like the candles that you need to do the ritual and things like that. They're selling that. And their whole shtick, if you look at their website is about really bringing back Bengali identity. Now, having said that, when we come to marginalization, it's true that internet spaces often do break down barriers of accessibility um, and they allow a broader range of folks to engage with things that may have been outside of their reach for financial reasons or regional distance or what have you now unfortunately though um, there are a group of people and i wrote about this in the piece that are still left out of this you know accessibility boom if you want to call it that um and that that particular group are the people that have a very different story to tell about the story of Durga killing Mahishasura those are the indigenous asur people who live and are found across parts of west bengal and the st- indian state of jhadakhand the asurs as you might hear from their name um have traditionally been marginalized as Adivasis or indigenous, that means first dweller. Um, But they have also been marginalized every year through the Durga Puja because their story is that the Hindus have lied to you. Their story is that Mahishasura was our good king. He was a very good man. He was such a good king that the, Other gods, the Devas, these are not the main gods, but these are like, let's call them like minor gods, were jealous of him. And so they complained to Shiva and Vishnu and Brahma, the three main gods, and they said, you know, this guy is just cutting into our action and we are not getting our due. And therefore, you have to be able to do something about this. And so then they created Durga and Durga came and destroyed him, but he has always been our hero. And so if you talk to people like activists, like Sushma Asur, Sushma will say that this is a day of mourning. This is a day of sadness for the Asur community, but they are a very small indigenous community, much like indigenous peoples here. Right. And they have their voices are not heard. Um, in this space. And oftentimes they are instrumentalized. I would compare it to how we see three Native American or indigenous people represented in the Macy's Day Parade in New York City. And sometimes those people aren't even indigenous. Um, I'm reminded of Chris Rock's joke about how two of them were just Puerto Ricans. Um, But um, similarly, they have often been asked to be parts of a pandal. Um, for example, and sort of reenacting the what they see as the unjust slaughter of their king. And more recently there has been more activism pushing back against this. I have a I didn't send you this, but I'm happy to share it with your listeners if you're interested if they're interested. but I wrote a blog post on specifically the usura plight and what they did and and they have really joined together with activist movements, student activist movements coming out of Darwal Nehru University, JNU in Delhi that have argued for a more introspective and incisive look at indigenous traditions in India and how they have been erased, effaced or in some other way misrepresented. And in particular in 2013, we see a huge protest at Jarawal Nera University that includes the Usors and connects their protest with other types of what they call casteism, arguing that this isn't just about erasing indigenous religion and traditions, and it is also about a Brahmanical or priestly hierarchy in India, Mm. And and sort of making those connections.
0: Well I'm really glad that you told that story because that would be something that would easily be overlooked in the you know essentially the if somebody's looking at these events online and the massive scope of how much it is pumped out by like tourism boards and how like prevalent the hashtags would be it would be really easy to miss the you know, the the subplot going on just beneath the surface with the indigenous community. So those are stories that I am always excited to have broadcast on this show, because I'm always curious about what the story is behind the story. And there's always more to it than what we are told on the surface. So that's a really, I'm really grateful to you for sharing that. And segueing to activism, because like, you know, the, the story of activism that you told is just so powerful, but You also do a little bit of activist work yourself, uh, which I want to talk about a little a little bit. Yeah. You co-founded an organization that I was looking at today called the South Asia Scholar Activist Collective, which is Mm -hmm. trying to draw attention to Hindu nationalist fascist forces that are stifling academic freedom by basically equating anybody who is critiquing Hindu nationalism as being anti-Hindu. So, you know, I, I know a little bit about this issue, but obviously I have plenty to learn. And I'm wondering if you can talk about your organization, why it matters to you and what you are all up to.
1: Sure. Um, before I do that, let me just say a couple of one thing. Um, yeah. my, my background is Savarna, which means that I am from a privileged caste, a caste that is not marginalized in India. My family comes from Tamil Brahmins. I should have said it at the beginning but um, it's important for for your view, for your listeners to know that I hold the privilege of whiteness essentially in India mm, okay. Um, and it's important for people to know that I do not hold that privilege here obviously. Um, so but it is important that partly the reason that I can do some of the things that I do is because I hold that privilege. Forming this organization came out of an incident that happened in April where a colleague of mine um, was viciously trolled by an organization, a student organization that had determined that her interpretation of Hindu texts was offensive. And they they took that to mean that she was anti-Hindu. Um, disagreement on interpretations of texts happen all the time and certainly people have a right to critique religion. But this took it too far. And so this ultimately resulted in these people trying to have her fired. There was a petition that was circulated. I put my name on it because I believe in academic freedom, even if I disagree with somebody's interpretation of something. Um, And as somebody who was raised Hindu and is Hindu, I still support her right to speak. Um, When I signed that petition, I started receiving threats at my college email. And I received a threat that was a veiled sort of rape threat type thing. Um, I ended up having to figure out what to do with that. Should I be scared? Should I ignore it? Um, And I went through an entire process where I did that. I went through the provost, went through my dean, went through campus security, (laughs) ended up speaking to the Denver Police Department, which was terrible. I can't tell you (laughs) how terrible. Um, And then ended up having to have the report forwarded to the FBI. This is not something that I think most of us as scholars ever imagine would happen or do or, you know, and I'm not really a controversial scholar. Um, But after this, uh, my colleague and I started talking and we thought, we need a procedure because I didn't have any idea how to proceed right when this happened. I was just so shell-shocked. And so we came up with something called the Hindutva Harassment Field Manual, which is um, we co-wrote with nine of my colleagues, I believe. Um, And we put that out there and we started this new organization. Again, I am just one of like 10 other people that deserve a lot of credit for doing this work. Um, And so we all equally contributed to that and SASIC was born. And we did this largely because it turns out many of us who write about Hindu nationalism, or write about um, illiberal forces, particularly those that are demonizing minorities, demonizing other religious traditions that are not the majority, demonizing those that are in caste oppressed groups, are being sort of demonized now <laughs> as somehow anti-India, anti-Hindu, you name it, right? Mm. Um so that's where the organization and the field manual really came out of. And now we are sort of trying to support other organizations that are doing this work. In particular, I'd like to say a quick shout out for a conference that's happening for those of you that are interested in learning more called Dismantling Global Hindutva. Um, the the word for Hindu nationalism is Hindutva. Um, and this This conference is happening here, virtually in the United States, it's free to register. And this is um, essentially a conference to try to explain to people why Hindu nationalism in this particular context is an illiberal force, a force that is not good for India, and particularly, and I can't stress this enough, not the same as Hinduism. Mm. It is a political, narrow political ideology, and it is not, Hinduism. But there are forces in India right now that would like to equate the two um, that has really resulted in quite a bit of blowback. I was interviewed by NPR and a number of other organizations for this and then received an, an, a number of very hateful and frankly racist um, messages um, calling me things like curry, Uncle Tom, you know, and those kinds of that's, that's the one I can repeat. Um, mm. But the rest, the rest of them are ir- not repeatable. Um, in addition to threats,
0: where can people find that organization if they want to know more about SASIC?
1: Um, well, we have a website called SouthAsiaCollective.org that you can definitely go and check it out. Um, there will be a link to our field manual for anyone who is experiencing harassment. What we've done is lay out a procedure. For how to speak to deans, how to speak to administrators, how to handle the harassment online, um, what kinds of steps you can take to protect yourself, and how you know, and other resources, including a glossary of terms that we've created to sort of you know push back against some of the more specious claims that are being made. For example, the term Hindu phobia, which is being bandied about right now by many groups. Um, It sounds like They connect it to anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, so it sounds really legitimate, particularly in today's climate. But in actuality, it's simply a term that is sort of used quite often to talk about things like real racism and ethnophobia that does happen against Hindus. But more often than not, it's to tamp down criticism um, of anyone that speaks out about, for example, the illegal abrogation of Article 370 in Kashmir and given taking away their autonomy, the plight of Kashmiri Muslims. Um, it's usually used to tamp down any kind of criticism of casteism and violence against caste oppressed communities in India. Um, and again, these are things that aren't necessarily, uh, what I wanna say, Hindutva doesn't always engage in these kinds of processes. But more recently, it has become an all or nothing sort of zero sum game. Either you are pro Hindu nationalist or you're anti Hindu. um, And there's no sort of in between. And if you don't ascribe to that, you are somehow Hindu phobic. Um, And I've been accused of being Hindu phobic, despite, as I said, I am actually a Hindu, I do you know, that is my, that is my religious affiliation, (laughs) um, whether or not I'm practicing into something else, but, um, but these are, these are attacks that are really meant to like tamp down and stifle academic freedom. and, And that's really where it's at.
0: So I'm curious now what you are, you know, what some of your goals are for your future within public scholarship, you've been working with sacred rights, uh, to sort of, you know, get you going on being like a, very engaged public facing scholar in these fields and topics. And I'm wondering how you are approaching that and what you have that you're, that you're working on that you're really excited about.
1: Well, I recently published an op-ed on, um, called Namaste Nationalism on yoga and whiteness and extremism for the religion news service. And it was picked up by the Washington post. So that was very exciting. Um, I would say that, like, the Sacred Rights Fellowship has been just formative for me as a scholar. I want to thank both Megan Goodwin and Liz Bucar for just being amazing mentors. Um, But what I learned from it was honestly, to be kind of cheesy about it, the smart and being smart in public is a good thing. And I think having confidence that you are smart and can be in public is something that. I didn't realize was a learned skill until I did this workshop. Mm. And it was a really challenging. Many of us face imposter syndrome, doesn't matter how many degrees or how many things you've done. And I think for me, being a part of that was so important for that reason. Um, the other thing that I have been working on is I'm an occasional columnist for Religion News Service, which came out of Sacred Rites, which is yay. Um, And so my next piece is actually going to be looking at issues of authenticity and authority in digital religion.
0: Fantastic. Um, Well, I love this. Well, where can people find you if they are curious about, you know, following your work from here on out?
1: Well, my Twitter handle is the mod Sisyphus, and you're absolutely welcome to follow me there. I do usually put out things that I'm doing, and I have a website called globalizingdharma.com, and that is largely focused on my scholarly research, although I do put up other public scholarship things that I have done there as well.
0: Excellent. Well, Dr. Uh, Deepa Sundaram, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. This has been Just a fantastic conversation. I've learned so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really love this show and it's been an honor to be here.